Okay, good evening. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you're wondering why I keep going back to 1, 1 to 3 is because, as I mentioned, it's all in there. The whole epistle is locked up in those first three verses. Can't believe we got Ohio here on a Wednesday night. Wow. And a new Beth. You're, what's his name, sister? Both. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Good to see you guys. Good to see you, Jeff. <laughs> all right. Let's welcome all these folks. Hey, hey, give yourself a hand. I sound like a politician. That's, 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 that's ugly. That's an ugly thing to be. Ah, somebody's up to date. Let's have a couple moments of silent prayer. Well, I won't be silent. Father, it is a joy to be together with like-minded believers in these days. And we are assembled here in obedience to your gentle command to assemble ourselves together as we see the day approaching. The day we see approaching is when you send your son Jesus from heaven again, when he comes to restore all things, when he makes all people groups contemporary, when he makes all times simultaneously, simultaneous, when he makes all people live, when he recovers all that death has claimed. What a day that will be. And it's a day that we anticipate with great joyous, indescribable joy. And so, Father, in the meantime, we pray that your Holy Spirit will grant us 2020 vision of the eyes of our heart, that we may see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, who accepted a position infinitely lower than the one he enjoyed from eternity, infinitely lower than the angels, but then a little lower than the angels, rather. But now he is exalted above every other name at your right hand. May we see him, and in seeing him, see our own destiny in glory and honor. For you and your benevolence and your passionate philanthropy have destined us for the glory that is embodied even now in your resurrected son. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Hebrews 1, 1 goes like this so far. In many parts and in various ways long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets, in these last days has spoken definitively, completely, and finally to us in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The same God who spoke by the prophets to the ancestors spoke literally, and all it says in the Greek is en huyo, en huyo. 
in son. We should leave it that way for a moment because there's something indescribable about him. In son. A unique son. God's only eternally begotten son. Though it's the same God who spoke in both cases, in the prophets and in the son, there is a clear contrast between God speaking on many occasions in fragmentary increments by many tropes, by many means and metaphors and methods, visions, dreams, parables, and sometimes direct speech. And distinct from that, God speaking with totality, with singularity, and with eschatological finality in one who is son. Sounds clumsy in our English language. Speaking of this anarthrous noun, that means huio for son, doesn't have an article, so it's anarthrous. This anarthrous noun, huio, simply meaning son without an article, is also found in other places in Hebrews. 5.8, for example. And though this should probably be translated as a son, as Daniel B. Wallace says in his Greek grammar beyond the basics, I resorted that again to that again today. Daniel Wallace says that, quote, there is no decent way to express this in English. And he added, the point is, that God in his final revelation has spoken to us in one who has the characteristics of a son. And then he says his, cred- his credentials are vastly different from the credentials of the prophets or from the angels as the following context indicates. So this anarthrous noun, huio, son, Without an article is also found in Hebrews 3, 6, where it says, but Christ was faithful as son over God's household. And Hebrews 5, 8, where it says, although Jesus was son, he learned obedience through the adversities he suffered. And in 7, 28, where it says, that in contrast to the law which appoints men who are weak as high priest, the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints son, a son, son, who has been made perfect forever. Though in all these cases it would probably be proper to translate son as a son, It is intriguing to note once again that as Wallace says, there's no decent way to express this compactly in English. And I think this is entirely appropriate, that we don't even know how to translate it. Because it expresses the immeasurable quality and the incalculable value of the Son and of God's speech in a Son. In fact, I can only think of the word son in this context by picturing it with a exclamation point next to it. Son, exclamation point, is spoken finally, fully, completely, definitively 
in son. And then I also picture the father calling him son. His name is Jesus. After two verbs describing God's action, that he appointed him the son, heir of all things, and that by him he created the universe. The writer describes the son with two descriptive nouns. First, he says, he is a son who is the radiance of God's Shekinah glory. And then he says, he's the exact self-representation. Or we could say indentation of God's reality. The radiance of God's glory doesn't mean that there is God's glory over here and then the radiance of God's glory over here and they're unconnected or separate. No, it means that there is God's glory, which is one with his visible radiance. I and the Father are one. Jesus said to his accusers in John 10:30. He didn't always have a friendly audience like I do. He was as much as saying and saying I and the Father are one. He is as much as saying I am the radiance of my Father's glory. The pastor theologian who wrote Hebrews and that's exactly what he was, a pastor theologian chooses the word apogasma for radiance. It's A-P-A-U-G-A-S-M-A, apogasma. So it's apogasma tes doxes, radiance of his glory the radiance of the glory of the Father. And it's radiance, not reflection. If you got a translation that says reflection, it's not the right idea. Apogasmates doxes means the very radiance, not reflection, of God's splendor. Another word you can find in the dictionary for it is effulgence, E-F-F-U-L-G-E-N-C-E. And that's better than reflection or refulgence. Light can be reflected. Or it can be refulgent, as it's called, or reflected from an object that's not equal to itself, such as the light of the sun reflected from a chrome surface or a car mirror. So reflected or refulgence means reflected brightness. Effulgence, apogasma, the word he chooses in the Greek, refers to, quote, an actual ray from an original light body. It's the actual radiance of that glory. So effulgence is agreeable to the eternal generation of the Son by the Father, for the Son was eternally generated of the Father's own substance and is consubstantial with him. The radiance of his glory means he has the same substance and eternal essence as the Father. And I'm going to get into that a little more precisely tonight. 
Radiance is probably the best word for it. There are two visions in the scriptures that have gripped me for decades, and they still do, and they still do with more and more clarity every time. One is the vision of one like a son of man who comes with the clouds and approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel seven thirteen to 14. But another, even more intriguing to me, is the vision of God as Ezekiel saw him. And he said, I saw visions of God. And then he describes one in great detail in one twenty six to 28. Someday I'd like to do a whole study on this, but I'm going to just briefly touch on some of that vision. One of the most striking visions is the one in which the prophet said he saw the likeness of a man above. Anthropos plus anothen, a man above. But anothen also means a man from the beginning, an originless man. The son of man that Daniel sees is the man par excellence, the definitive person who could be called a man, but something more. And this, he says that this man, and this is the reason I'm taking this from Hebrews, or taking off from Hebrews 1 with this, he exuded a radiance, it says. This time he doesn't use apogasma, but the prophet uses a word, phegos, P-E-H-G-E-G-G-O-S, which is a similar type of word. But the phegos that he sees, and he uses a word that actually comes into the English language as electricity. The radiance was both fiery and electric. It was dynamic. It was not static. It was moving. It wasn't only radiating from from him and around him and the sort of an ambient radiance, but he said it was moving up and down from what appeared to be the middle of his body, up and down, electric, fiery radiance. It emanated from him in 127 of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel went on to say, intriguingly, that the appearance, appearance of the surrounding radiance was also reminiscent of what he called a bow or a rainbow in the cloud, a very gentle and hopeful image, not a fearful or fretful one. He said, it appeared to me like a rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day. And he concluded and simply said, that's what the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, looked like to me. A man emanating the radiance of Yahweh, who actually is the radiance of Yahweh. But he's in the shape and the form of Anthropos, a man, but a man above, Anothen, above. Unless you are born from above, nothing. You aren't going to see the kingdom of God. Appropriately, like John at Patmos, who saw the formerly dead, now forever alive, son of man. I don't know if he said this, but it gives new meaning to this word, man alive. And he saw this, and who was it in Revelation 1.10 but the Son of Man, the same Son of Man, the same person. His voice was like a cascade of, it's like Niagara Falls or 
Victoria Falls. It was a cascade of waters because the waters speak of all humankind. He embodied all of humankind and his voice spoke as all mankind. This one strangely is all the reality that God is, but he's also all the reality that humanity is. And he's alive, but he was dead. So appropriately, Ezekiel does the same, has the same kind of response as John did at Patmos. He falls on his face. That's appropriate. And so this man, this appearance, as he calls it, and I couldn't help thinking of the fire that was all around him and in him. It was a fiery presence. It reminded me of the declaration in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. The appearance of the man above, anthropon anothen. This will be in print, so I'm not going to write everything up here. This man from the beginning is another way to describe him. As described in Ezekiel 1.26, is contrasted with the image, and I saw this for the first time today. He's contrasted with the image of one called the corruptible man. In Romans 1.23, the corruptible man, the image of the corruptible man, which is ekonas phthartu anthropu, whose image was chosen, says the writer, who is really an interlocutor that Paul is engaged with. The image of the corruptible man was chosen in exchange for the glory of the incorruptible God the exchange of the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of corruptible man. The image of the incorruptible God is the man above, who is the radiance of Yahweh and the shape and form of a man. This is doctrine that I that's why I ask you to pray for me that I can articulate things that are pretty much inarticulable the man above is in contrast to the corruptible man and the man above is the image of the incorruptible God that people have exchanged for the image of corruptible man for worship because they simply choose not to retain the knowledge of God. They don't want to keep it around. There are those who prefer not to retain the knowledge of God. The man above, in contrast, is the image of the incorruptible God because in Colossians 1.15, Paul writes that the son of God's love, and I love that name for him in Colossians 1.13, he's still the subject, the son of God's love, Colossians 1.13, is the image, ekon, of the invisible God. That's who Ezekiel saw. And this agrees with 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 
which speaks of the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. Ekon ton theu. So this man above and from the beginning is the very person, the very son whom God sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and in whose sinless flesh God condemned sin on the cross. Romans 8, 3, what the law couldn't do, God did, sending his son in the likeness, homoiomati, likeness of sinful flesh. But in his sinless flesh, God condemned your sin, my sin, sin itself. He who knew no sin became sin. that We might be made the righteousness of God in him. This man above is none other than he who has always existed in the essence of God. There's a great affinity here to a hymn in the scripture from Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It's a hymn. H-Y-M-N. He was in the morphe of God, which means he existed in the essence of God as the very essence of God. But who didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. The hymn goes on to say, and he emptied himself of this advantage by becoming essentially a slave. Because in the likeness of a slave, he became in the likeness as was found in the shape and form, not of the man above any longer, but of a regular everyday man. Not clothed with glory or splendor, but simple clothes. But he was witnessed by his disciples. Those who saw him did see a glory. We beheld his glory even in that form. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And we all have received from his fullness even grace after grace. John 1, 14 to 16. The reason he humbled himself and did not consider his equality with God an advantage to be grasped is because humbling himself, he would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross in Philippians 2.8. And this is why, as the hymn goes in Philippians 2.9, and you'll see how this connects with Hebrews 1, 4, and 5, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. The bestowal of this name, which is so integral to the hymn quoted by Paul in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is something that Hebrews 1, 5 also deals with in speaking specifically of the son's name being superior to any name named among the angels. And we'll be getting to that fairly soon, not tonight. Theologically speaking, 
And we spent 15 hours in DLT and another 15 in Doctrine of the Mystery for a reason to lead up to this. Was it my designed reason? No, it was God's designed reason. Theologically speaking, son, Huio, who is introduced in Hebrews 1-2, is identical with Yahweh's glory and essence or substance. Listen, this is very fine-tuned theology, Christology study of Christ. And yet he's not identical with Yahweh the Father. He is, in the words carefully chosen by Athanasius, now God raised up Athanasius to fight toe-to-toe against Arius, who said there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. In other words, the Son was not eternally begotten. And so they actually had to fight this out they duked it out and the result was the Nicene Creed but the greatest champion of the Nicene Creed was a guy named Athanasius and he fought this out and I'm sure he fought most of it out in his study but he also had to fight it out on the the stage as it were at the time Athanasius came up with a rule the rule of Athanasius A-T-H-A-N-I-A-S-I-U-S Athanasius And he simply said, the same things are said of the Son as are said of the Father, except that the Son is not the Father. Now, he captured something here that could be fanned out forever in a theology book. I'll say it again. The same things are said of the Son as are said of the Father, except that the Son is not the Father. Bernard Lonergan was no doubt right to say this. He said, through his diligent, reverent, and judicious inquiry, the mind of Athanasius was enlightened by his faith to arrive at this rule. So what we're doing here is, and I actually thought, wow, if I could only look at, what if my study was a a diligent, reverent, and judicious inquiry? Someone would say, did you study today? No, I engaged in a diligent, reverent, and judicious inquiry. (laughs) But through that, the mind of Athanasius was enlightened by his faith to arrive at this rule. What we're doing here is, among other things, a theological exegesis of the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus is the reality of God. And the reality of man. He is the substance of true divinity. And he is the essence of true humanity. And I want that, I think of that with the expectations that our minds too will be enlightened by our faith. That's why we're here. Next, we're told that the sun is the exact imprint or indentation of the impression made by God. The analogy is pictorial. It appeals to our imagination. We imagine a signet ring being pressed carefully and intently into hot, melted wax. And the impression left being perfectly accurate. We imagine the intimate contact of the ring with the wax and the oneness of the convex with the concave 
in that exchange. The indentation of the signet ring in the wax is unmistakably that of the bearer of the ring. The impression left by the signet ring is more certain than that of a signature, which may be counterfeited or forged. The writer is making an attempt to say that this son is the exact and inimitable self-representation of the father. The self-representation of the father is the self-revelation of the father. If you have seen me, if one has seen me, Philip, if someone has seen me, they have seen the father. That's how intimate this is between the father and the son. The writer is making an attempt to say that this son is the exact and inimitable self-representation of the father. The self-representation of the father is the self-revelation of the father. The self-revelation of the father is the self-dedication of the father to you, to me, to us, to mankind, sinful and fallen. The self-dedication of the Father in the Son. Or we could say the self-dedication of the Father to us in Son. That the Father spoke in a Son means that he self-revealed in a Son. And that that self-revelation was a self-dedication. Now follow this. Follow this. The image of the signet ring and its impression is a very apt analogy both for the eternal procession of the Son from the Father and for the incarnation of the Son and that which we call the entire Christ event ending with his crucifixion, climaxing with his death and his burial, his resurrection, his elevation that elevation which began by the action of men hoisting him up on a cross was completed by God elevating him to the highest place of heaven and seating him at his right hand, at the right hand of majesty on high. So the cross was part of his exaltation, even though the action of men was involved. It was, the God, it was God's counsel that he be handed over to godless men and crucified, then raised by the Father. We must envision Jesus and him crucified, therefore. Listen carefully to this, please. We must envision Jesus and him crucified, Jesus and him crucified, as the exact impression or indentation of the Father. For the signet ring in this analogy is the father himself and the son, the impression, the exact representation of the father's essence of God's reality, the exact impression, the character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R, character. Sounds familiar, character. 
But it's the character, taste of God's hypostasis. Hypostasios, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-E-O-S. The character or the impress of the Father's essence of God's reality. Hypostasis also means reality with a capital R here. So if we were to ask this question, what is the reality of God? The correct answer is Jesus. If we were to ask the question, what is the reality of true humanity? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is reality, period. Elsewhere, the Son of God's love, if 113, is called the image of the invisible God, as we've seen in 115. Both image and impression, character and acom, both image and impression are attempts to make an impression on the imagination of faith. The imagination of the reader regarding the exact resemblance of the son to the father. And it was never made more explicitly clear when Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the father in John 14, nine. The pastor theologian is careful to be precise. It's not just a matter of resemblance, like family resemblance. It's not even a matter of exact resemblance. Of the son to the father. It's the matter of identity of substance. The identity of substance. The theologians had to invent a term called consubstantial. Homoousios in the Nicene Creed. It's recently been recovered by theologians and Catholic theologians, especially consubstantial. It's a matter of identity. There are others, identity of substance. And then there's identity of person to be an identical identity to have the identity of the person. He would have to be the person of the father and he's not the person of the father, but he's the identity of the father's substance. This is mind-racking theology, at least on my part. hope it's understandable on yours, at least in some degree. It's not a matter of identity of person. As we've seen, God is not a person, but three persons in one, triune God. And so it's not a matter of identity of person, for the son is a person other than the father. 
But it's a matter of identity of substance and of reality. For the Son is of one reality with the Father and with the Holy Spirit for that matter, but we're not even there yet. We won't get there tonight. He is the reality with a capital R of the Father without being the person of the Father. He is all that the Father is, but he is not the Father. He's the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. He is the only eternally begotten of the Father, whom the Father eternally generates out of his own substance, and who is consubstantial with the Father, but not identical with his person. This is why we did a stint of theology before entering in earnest into an exegesis of Hebrews. That's why we went there first. I see that now. The only eternally begotten Son whose glory was beheld by eyewitnesses. We beheld his glory. Full of grace and truth. No room for anything but grace and reality. Mercy and faithfulness and reality. He was the sum total of God's covenant fidelity right in the flesh. Writes John, the beloved disciple, not John the apostle. He exegetes God in John 1.18. Exegetes him. Talk about theological exegesis. He exegetes the father whom no human has ever seen as he is in his essence. That's the beatific vision. You will see that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and the heart is purified by faith. Only one man, the man Christ Jesus, sees the Father as he is in his essence. The Son is the perfect, infallible, inerrant, and impeccable exegesis of the Father That's usually said about the Bible, bibliology, inerrant, verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant, impeccable, imperfect, and authorized and inspired, etc. That's Jesus. The Son is the perfect, infallible, inerrant, and impeccable exegesis of the Father. And there aren't any variants in the translation. Jesus is the eternal Word made flesh. The eternal son made in the likeness of sinful human beings by being born through a woman, a virgin woman. Though he is also like all of us, like all of us, with the exception of our sin. Big exception. In fact, Jesus was tempted, as Hebrews teaches us in 4.15, Tempted and tried and tested in every way that we are. And yet, unlike all of us, he was without sin. In other words, he didn't resort to sin to find relief from the temptation. Now, I have a temptation. It's not, I don't think it's sinful. I hope it's not. But if I have a bag of marshmallows that are set aside only for hot chocolate in the pantry, and I know those marshmallows are there, the temptation comes. 
and I'm studying, and I'm going, I'm thinking of marshmallows. But I'm studying, and I'm, 10 minutes goes by, and I think of the marshmallows. And I said, but there, there's only a few left, and Pam will want some hot chocolate later. So I couldn't do that. Well, you can always run down to Giant Eagle after, you know. So eventually what I do is I go, I eat the marshmallows. You see, this actually happened recently. You know why? Because it eased, it, it was the only way to ease the temptation was to give in to it, see. But now that's, now if we take this seriously, there's a temptation to sin. Jesus never resorted to the sin to find a relief from the temptation. So you can imagine how intense the temptation got. Because he never gave in. And the temptations of the 40 days in the wilderness were indescribable. He didn't resort to sin to find relief from the temptation. So he who was temptable because of the weakness of his acquired human nature was impeccable, not only because of his eternal divine nature, but because of his impeccably obedient human nature. Again, it's important that we understand that the singular and definitive disclosure of the Son, and that's why I'm not leaving Hebrews 1 to 3 so quickly, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 so quickly, just like when we taught Revelation. I hovered for a long time in Revelation 1 through 3. There's a lot of substantial stuff there that's fanned out through the rest. So it's important that we understand that the singular and definitive disclosure of the son is distinguished qualitatively. Now, someone will say, we came together for encouragement, so we want you to tell us what to do with our lives. What should we? You're not telling us what to do. I'm presenting to you the son, and I'll tell you what to do. Be occupied with him. Otherwise, your Christianity doesn't amount to anything. It, does, it amounts to a bunch of ethical moves that might impress your peers, but it has nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity is Jesus Christ in you. Christianity is Christ being formed in you as you are formed in Christ and Christ becoming the subject of your action, your willing, and your movements in this life. And there is none of that unless you're occupied with, his, with the Son. So that's all I'm doing, is being presenting to you him. He's distinguished qualitatively from the many fragmentary and provisional communiques of God in and by the prophets. We studied a couple of them recently. How... God told Ezekiel to set up a big grill in Jerusalem. I don't want to go over that again, though. My brother-in-law said to me, I told him that story, and he said, well, I think there's a BS factor there. And I said, look it up. And he Googled it, and he said, uh, you're right. Not Phil Danny. Danny was Danny. But here's the grill, and... I want you to bake barley cakes, but instead of charcoal bricks, I want you to use human excrement bricks and cook the barley cakes and eat them in front of Jerusalem because 
I'm speaking to you, a prophet. I'm speaking in a prophet to the people and saying that's where you're going to go when you're the diaspora and spread all over the nations. You're going to eat unclean food and not ritually purified food everywhere you go. There's an illustration. Prophets had to do weird stuff. God spoke in them not only by words but by actions. God spoke in his son not only by the red words that are in the Bible, by the words that he said, but by the action of his crucifixion where he showed that God is love. So, what a distinction between the many fragmentary and provisional communiques of God in and by the prophets. But, you know, the once and for all and final sacrifice of the Son himself is also distinguished qualitatively from the many and various sacrifices made by the priests of the Levitical order. Now, this is another thing I want you to understand. There is an indissoluble unity, a unity that you cannot dissolve between the Son and his sacrifice in Hebrews. This is why Paul said, and he's the one who saw him, I determined to know nothing among you, and that means to know nothing here with you and communicate nothing to you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't ever segregate the person from the sacrifice, and Hebrews does the same. There's an indissoluble unity between the son and his sacrifice in Hebrews. Because of this, the exact impression and indentation that the son of the father is means that it is specifically the son, Jesus, enduring the cross in Hebrews 12, 2, and tasting death for everyone without exception in 2, 9. That is the exact self-representation of the father. Jesus enduring the cross and tasting death, that means experiencing it for everyone without exception, that is the exact self-representation of the Father. It's not just when we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. When we see Jesus crucified, we see the Father. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the father's love. What's the, what is God saying in a son? I love you. How much? <laughs> yeah. I'll show you. I'll taste death for every one of you. To the dregs. Jesus having been hoisted up on the cross. And that's the image I've had lately. Yes, when I'm lifted up. But they had to hoist him up in the air, way up in the air, and then let that cross drop deep in the hole so that he came out over the earth. Every joint out of joint. So 
That's the father. That's love. The image. And God doesn't permit us these images. Until we're spiritually ready. Otherwise they would become morbid imagery. They're not. They're the image of his love. He only allows us these images when we are, when the love of God is poured out in our hearts. Jesus being hoisted up on the cross as the supreme redeeming sacrifice. That is the exact self-representation of the Father. I cannot stress this too strongly. When Jesus said to the religious leaders who intended to kill him, in other words, not a friendly audience, when you will have hoisted me up, then you will know that I am. Then you will know that I am. That I am the self-representation of the Father. That I am the very identity of his substance. That I am love. Then you'll know. You want to see the father? You see him in a man crucified. The man from above. The man from the beginning. The man who radiates the radiance of the father. The man who is the signet ring's impression. The man who is God. The God who is man. Crucified. He was saying then. And he's saying, even now, the thing I love about the scriptures is they were inspired, but they're still being spoken by the spirit of life. He still speaks them. They're still alive. They're still spoken by. Today, if you hear his voice. Well, you know, we don't hear the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts as they did when the days of rebellion in the wilderness, because you're like the wanderers in the wilderness. You've been called out, but you haven't been called all the way in yet. You're in the wilderness like the children of Israel. Don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion when they tempted God and put God to the test. It wasn't God putting them to the test. It was them putting God to the test. Let's see how far we can go before dad drops the hammer. So he was saying, and he's still saying by the Holy Spirit, he was saying, and he's still saying by the Holy Spirit that the clearest representation of the father in the son is the son crucified. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see Jesus crucified is to see the Father most clearly. For it is to see God who is love. It is to see God in his unqualified beneficence, benevolence toward mankind. His infinite benevolence, his fiery, unrestricted 
and unconditional philanthropy, love especially for mankind. In a day when people want to call God the universe and equate man with any other creature, Jesus said, you are worth more than many sparrows. You are worth more than many sparrows. There isn't an equality in my love of you with a sparrow or you with with material creation. God has a specific love called philanthropia. And when the philanthropia of God appeared, when Christ was crucified, guess what happened? God saved you. That's what Titus 3, 4 says. Not by righteous, righteous works, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of a bath called regeneration, by the renewing of the spirit, which he pours out generously because he will pour out that spirit on all flesh. By grace, you've been justified. Titus 3, 4 to 7, A. That fire, that electricity, that indescribable fiery radiance that was in that man above, that's love. Many waters cannot quench the fire of love. It burns unquenchably. It's an unquenchable fire. That's not hell. That's God's love. Can't put it out. Well, you don't know what I've done. I've poured a lot of water on that love. And then put it out. Who do you think you are? You think the things you've done in evil bear more weight with God than the thing Christ did in love? Or the others that you like to think about that could never make the cut, never make have You don't make the cut. When the philanthropy of God appeared, when Christ appeared, crucified, he saved you. Here's the grace of God. The grace of God was revealed. Same word. It had an epiphany. Titus 2.11. What is it? Colon. Salvation of all mankind. Salvation of all mankind. When the philanthropy of God appeared, he saved you. Who? All mankind. You don't make the cut. Well, I made the cut. Yeah, you made the team. You are on the team of the arrogant bastards. Congratulations. Self-righteous all the way. And you're still going to heaven. (laughs) Well, that's funny. All right. In closing, therefore... John the Presbyteros, that's what he called himself. There's John the Baptist and there's John the Presbyterian. You got to distinguish John the Baptist and then John the Presbyteros. I call him John the Presbyterian. You know, John the Presbyterian wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Probably wrote Gospel of John and Revelation too. He goes by the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he also goes by John the Elder, the old man. Presbyteros, John the Presbyterian, 
You know what John the Presbyterian said? Not John the Baptist, John the Presbyterian. He connected love with the sacrifice of God's son. In 1 John 4, 8c, the third part of that verse, all the way through verse 10, see if this is not familiar to you. 4, 8c, God is love. By this, God's love was revealed among us that the only eternally begotten son was sent by God into the world so that we would live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. That's love. And it's found in Hebrews 9.26. Now once in the end of the ages or in the juncture of two ages, the end of one, the beginning of another, we live right there. In the end of the ages, in the juncture of the ages that's shaped like a cross, in the hinge that closes the door on the evil age and opens the door on the messianic age, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's love. Someone says love isn't mentioned much in Hebrews. Love is all through Hebrews. So that it doesn't even have to be mentioned. Even though it is mentioned. Like Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. Or Hebrews 10.24. To provoke one another to love. And to good works. In Hebrews 13.1, not Philadelphia, not Philanthropia, but Philadelphia, let brotherly love continue. Jesus, whom we see ever more clearly with the enlightened eyes of our understanding. You see, Paul prayed that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Guess what Hebrews is being taught in Tetelestai Phalanx right now? The answer to that prayer. As I said, I used to love George Harrison's song. I really want to see you, Lord. Skip the Harry Krishna stuff. But the song's beautiful in itself. Especially how Billy Preston did it in the concert for George in 2002. You can Google it. It's awesome. But I really want to see you, Lord. I really want to know you. I really want to see you. But it seems to take so long, my Lord. Well, reading, guess what Hebrews is all about? We see Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor, who for a little while, for one purpose only, he was made a little lower than the angels. For a little while, for one reason, for the purpose of the suffering of death. So that he could be perfected, not only by being the reality of all of who God is, but his perfection now means that he's the reality of all who all of you, you are and all of humanity is. Had to happen through suffering. Because it was a little thing called sin in the middle and in the way. That's the main. I just gave you a kind of a glimmer of the thesis of this whole study. Jesus, whom we see ever more clearly with the enlightened eyes of our understanding is all that is identified and identical with true divinity bodily. Colossians 2.9. He was always that. There never was a moment when he wasn't all that. But now he is all of that in a human body like ours. 
not like the one Ezekiel saw, like ours. Only a body that's already gone through a transformation like ours will, glorified, transcendent, but human body. He is a model of our hope for glory and honor. So I hope we will come to see with enlightened eyes. This is the Lord's doing. He's marvelous in our eyes, our enlightened eyes. I hope, and by that I mean I believe, that we will come to see with enlightened eyes that this same Jesus is all that true humanity is and that his perfection in Hebrews 2.10, God said he must be perfected through suffering. His perfection is something that's all about you. His perfection means that all of humanity is also in him bodily. Something you don't understand yet, and I don't either, but we will. When he appears a second time and is sent a second time from heaven to earth, it will be for salvation, as we've heard in Hebrews 9.28. The salvation that our Savior brings to us includes the endlessly glorious gift of a body of glory. Philippians 3.20, incorruptible, immortal, and forever in touch with and expressive of the real and the true. Meanwhile, Jesus, our great high priest, is the face of the faithfulness and mercy of God. As our merciful and faithful high priest, who has empathy for the very feelings of our infirmity. Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor, bears the marks of cruel crucifixion. For they testify of the obedience that he, though son, demonstrated through suffering. So, Father, we thank you. And once again, we thank you for the opportunity of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak freshly now in our midst. The encouragement you speak of that we meet for in Hebrews 10.25 isn't just a pep talk. It's the Holy Spirit manifesting the Son as the self-representation of the Father so that that very image is stared at by us with open face, with unveiled face, for we with unveiled face behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord, the radiance of the Father in the Son. And we are being transformed from increment to increment, a little here and a little there, imperceptibly, a little here and a little there, from one degree of glory to another. And this is all accomplished not by a pastor, not by a preacher, but by the Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit. And where the Lord, the Spirit is, there's that liberty to be transformed into that image. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity of presenting as.